This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with J.T. Thomas, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Mississippi. J.T. is the author of several books, most recently, Diversity Regimes, Why Talk is Not Enough to Fix Racial Inequality at Universities with Rutgers University Press. Today on the Annex, Race, Inequality, and Justice on Campus with J.T. Thomas. Stay with us. JT, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. You've written a bunch of really interesting uh, articles recently, and of course, your books, everything from work on comedy to the book Our Race is Crazy, and now your book on diversity regimes and diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at colleges and universities. And I'm really curious about this term diversity regimes. What did you mean by that? How do you conceptualize that? You know, What does it look like on the ground? Yeah. First, thanks for having me on here. I'm I'm super pumped about it. I listen to this podcast when I get the time to. Um, I always find it just informative, clarifying, engaging. So I'm I'm thankful for the opportunity. Diversity regimes. The way that I think about it is a constellation of beliefs and practices about diversity that do more to to sort of reproduce or reify a kind of a benign commitment to diversity than they do to actually create transformative change in terms of how power resources, opportunities, or decision-making are distributed. So before we talk more about your book specifically, how did you get interested in this topic and what made you decide to write about the institution you call Diversity University? It actually had to do with some things I saw and experienced on my own campus I got to the University of Mississippi in 2012 as a visiting professor, and my first semester there that fall, that was the same year that we had, you know, the national elections. Uh, Obama was up for re-election, was running against Mitt Romney. And that November, the night of the election, you know, I remember watching the election results kind of roll in with, with my wife and we were having conversations. We, we both kind of thought that, you know, Obama was going to win. It was going to be a little closer than we thought it was going to be, but he was going to win. And we were kind of talking about what does that mean, right, over the next four years. And some of our conversation was a bit hopeful in, in terms of how we were thinking about it. And then I wake up the next day and I've got, you know, these emails from the university, like official communique, and notifications on my phone from news reports, local news reports, that, you know, there was essentially a riot late that night in Oxford, Mississippi, on the campus of the University of Mississippi, right in front of the Lyceum and in the Grove. So what had happened was around, I guess, 11 o'clock that night of the election, as the results are coming in, some students started to gather, began to harass black passersby. Uh, They yelled racist slurs at them. And pretty soon that crowd of, you know, maybe a half a dozen to a dozen swelled to over 400. Students took an Obama-Biden campaign sign and set it on fire and were chanting, the South will rise again, which for, you know, for those who don't live and work in Mississippi, that is something you never want to hear yelled late at night in, in, a, in a small town in Mississippi. And, you know, the university the next day went into crisis mode with their messaging. 
And what, you know, I remember the chancellor at the time, the message that we got, I, I distinctly remember the way he described it. He described these students as, you know, some bad apples and that we weren't going to let, you know, this one incident or these few students define the university or what the university is because we are fully committed to diversity and inclusion at the University of Mississippi. And I sat there and I thought to myself, I said, you know, sociologically speaking, there's something to me really fascinating about the prevalence of these kinds of institutional commitments that coexist at the same time with spikes in racial conflict and racial violence. So the, the question I kind of started with was, how is that possible that an institution so publicly committed to diversity and inclusion can also be the site of such prevalent white supremacist actions, right? And that's, that's where I started. Your description of the riot after Obama's re-election just actually reminds me a bit about the events of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, a little sort of a precursor, kind of a, I wouldn't say a test run or anything like that, but but it seems like there are some lines that you could draw between a response to the continuing power of a black man as president and the concerns that were the concerns, the um, the white supremacist xenophobia that was on display at that at that rally. And, you know, Charlottesville and Oxford, I don't think they're that different in terms of size. I mean, Charlottesville might be a little bit larger as, in terms of a town. But, yeah, that's that's so interesting that we sort of saw a, a preview in some maybe in some respects the Unite the Right rally. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, Charlottesville and Oxford aren't too dissimilar. Charlottesville is bigger, but they both sort of have the same sort of Southern nostalgic mystique that are attached to both of those towns, uh, in part due to the to the universities that those, those towns revolve around. Right. And cultural life revolves around. But, I, you know, that was 2012. And it seems like clockwork at my institution and other institutions. Right. Like the University of Mississippi isn't the only place that that racism uh, you know, kind of rears its ugly head on on a routine basis. But my my point was that you know since 2012, it's routine here, right? And so it's not just that it was one event. There's been a pretty consistent set of events. Like faculty and and staff, when when we talk amongst ourselves, we often talk about you know racism has a season here in in Oxford, right? It's it's usually around the fall semester when some, you know, when some event happens and and the proverbial shit hits the fan. And then usually something else is going to happen in the spring and then you've got this lull over the summer and then it comes right back around, right? And I feel like that's probably the case at at many other campuses. And so again, you know, how is it possible that we're so publicly committed to, you know, this this idea of being diverse and inclusive and equitable, and now we're committed to being anti-racist, and yet the the events that happen on the ground are anything but those, right? Yeah, I mean, at my institution, there, there have certain, certainly been events in the, in the past, you know, five or 10 years that sort of serve as markers and touchstones for, you know, continued conversation about the the progress and then the barriers or lack of progress in terms of actually making uh, the campus environment one that is uh, responsive to the needs of our students of, of color and faculty and staff of color in ways that just remind us of the embeddedness of uh, the particular culture of, of uh, you know, white supremacy and whiteness here on, on our particular campus. All right, well, let's, let's switch and talk a little bit about 
I think follows up directly with what you just said. There is, I mean, anyone who's paying attention has been seen, has heard a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion on many campuses right now. I mean, obviously in the, in the response to last summer's um, activism, you know, marches, protests, and things in the wake of the, the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and several other black Americans here in the U.S., you know, my university and a former institution I worked at both have recently hired or are looking to hire chief diversity and inclusion officers. You know, what does your research say about what's driving this hiring and about the possibilities and pitfalls of this kind of approach to diversity and inclusion on campuses? To my mind, it's really important to put the kind of growth of this position, these chief diversity officer positions in, in a bit of historical context. Uh, when we're when we're talking about higher ed, right? When colleges and universities began imagining diversity initiatives, kind of in the late 1970s through the early 1980s, part of that included the creation at the time of what were minority or multicultural affairs officers, and the responsibilities of these officers varied tremendously from one institution to the next because at most places they were trying to build the plane while flying it. But when you get into the 1990s or around the 1990s and really ramping up across the last few decades of the, of the 21st century, you see sort of this shift in those positions in, in terms of their title, but also their role and associated duties, right? Now we have chief diversity officers where we used to have multicultural affairs officers. And to my mind, it's not a coincidence that that happens alongside of other major shifts in the funding model of public higher education, as well as other shifts in the kind of management structure of higher education that are made to make it more closely resemble a corporate model. Now, at the same time, there's pretty good evidence that for a lot of universities, these positions arose or were created as a response to local protests among students, faculty, and staff who were voicing concerns about racism on their campus and wanted an institutional response to that. So in some cases, there were demands for the creation of these positions. I think in terms of what my research shows, as a whole, what, what I would say my research shows and what, what other research also shows is that these positions are really a mixed bag. Individuals who are appointed as chief diversity officers, they come from a wide range of backgrounds, right? Some are trained academics. Many are not. They refer to themselves as practitioners, but it's often unclear what that actually means other than they're not an academic. At some institutions, you see that there's an entire office that's created and with that office comes an entire support staff, right? But then at other institutions, the chief diversity officer is an office of one person. And once these positions are created, there's this effect on many campuses where faculty, staff, students, and then also other administrators will defer to the chief diversity officer as sort of the sole expert or possessor of all knowledge and understanding around diversity. And that can have the effect of putting way too much pressure on this one person to transform the institution uh, or to make transformative change. And it also undermines the role that students, faculty, and staff have played and can continue to play in creating a more just and, and equitable institution. You know, more broadly, 
I, I get concerned when I see the, the quick formation of these offices because of the kind of unintended consequence of undermining what I think should be a really good goal of any public institution. And I speak from the perspective of, of, of someone who works at a public institution. But one goal of public institutions should be to democratize the workplace, uh, not compartmentalize it. And if equity, for example, is an institutional goal, that's something that the institution says it's committed to, then we ought to be looking well beyond the scale and scope of just this one office or this one person in this office in trying to achieve that goal or even set and establish those goals. It has to involve the campus, not just this office. You have to bring that into the fold of the university in a way that equity is now a core commitment and the processes everywhere else on campus are well aligned with that core commitment and you can understand or clearly see how every other process on campus is going to be working toward achieving that goal, right? If we're saying that that is a core goal, which all of these institutions seem to be saying right now. The other one thing I'd, I'd want to add to this too, the chief diversity officer model, this corporate model that's really focused on you know doing things like climate surveys and creating you know these kind of strategic outlines or plans or documents for, you know, all of these little pieces that we're going to be doing that are going to set us on a, you know, on a road toward a more just institution. It's not that those things in and of themselves are bad, but I think sometimes it lose sight of the fact, it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that calls for equity, calls for inclusion, calls for diversity, calls for racial justice. These are moral imperatives. They're not just corporate goals, right? And they shouldn't be corporatized. And we certainly shouldn't lose sight of the fact that they're moral imperatives. So when we say we want a more representative workforce, when we say that we want a set of hiring practices and retention practices and recruitment practices that center on hiring, retaining, and recruiting more black faculty, for example, it's because there's a moral imperative to do so, not just because, you know, it's some sort of corporate goal or a set of corporate wish lists. And, and I, I think that's really important to constantly stress in those conversations. I think, you know, I definitely have seen these positions elevated, as you say, sort of from, I mean, elevated in the hierarchy, right, in, in that kind of a model, elevated from one office within student affairs to a central kind of presence or provost kind of cabinet level position. And it seems to me that, you know, part of your analysis here would would suggest that that is, in some ways, it's a very visible way of signaling. It's virtue signaling is what I want to say. It's sort of, it's signaling that this is a thing that is taken seriously at the highest levels of the institution. But at the same time, it's cordoned off or siloed off and, you know, one person or a very small, you know, group are tasked with pulling or moving an entire institution in a more, you know, just equitable direction. And as you say, like, that is just, that's too much to put on any, any particular, you know, person. And part of me, since I have a master's degree in student affairs administration, thinks that we may see the rise of training programs for master's level and even you know doctoral level folks who will will fill the pipeline 
right? And sort of make this a another track in a in a PhD program for higher ed administrators who some of whom do very important you know research on higher education as an institution, but others who definitely serve this uh, this practitioner role, you know, lead divisions of student affairs and and that that kind of thing, which is honorable and worthy worthy work, but but sort of perpetuates the professionalization of of this and the sort of the bureaucratization of it at the same at the same time. That's so interesting. Let me add to that too though, right? Like the other piece of this is how these kind of you know, in title a chief diversity officer, how they're in many ways siloed out of some of the rooms and decision making processes that could potentially be transformative, right? Like I don't know of many chief diversity officers that, you know, have a central role in determining the budget of the university every year. And to my mind, if we're talking about equity, fundamentally, we're talking about redistribution. We're talking about the redistribution of power, resources, opportunities and decision making. That person and that office and conversations about equity have to be centered in conversations about a budget. Um, And my sense is that's not often the case. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for, you know, all these all these offices, but my understanding is at least at places that I know pretty well, the budget of their own office is very limited and, you know, the staff is very short, you know, part-time sort of part-time graduate student help, you know, one or two folks like that, a chief diversity officer, you know, no administrative support. Without naming any particular institution, there's one close to me that has that that kind of model, even even though that institution is trying to hire a full time person, um, the current occupant of that has a half time appointment as a faculty member. So, in, you know, in, in addition to their you know, teaching and research obligations. Well, um, JT, I know at least it seems to me that you know when these offices are inaugurated and when you know universities, particularly PWIs, uh, have these these initiatives. There's there's the sense that you know this is going to be transformational for the institution that you know faculty hiring is going to change and student satisfaction is going to increase particularly of black students and other students of, of color and basically the the message that we hear is that everything is going to work out just fine if we can you know have an office that deals with this issue for our university but I've noticed you know that these initiatives are discussed as if everyone equally benefits and no one is left out. So what do you think, or what does your research suggest about what it would take for a PWI to give up some of that institutional power and control and redistribute it in a way that's really truly inclusive, equitable, and accountable to black communities, to, uh, to a true anti-racist ethic you know, to communities, you know, that are that are harmed or affected by the normal operation of of the university. I mean, I've been at places where the university is right up against a traditionally black neighborhood and the university just keeps gobbling up like more and more real estate and displacing those communities. So, you know, what, what could you say about what PWIs really need to do to redistribute and hold themselves uh, and their leadership accountable? It reminds me of the uh, Frederick Douglass quote about power concedes nothing without a demand, right? We have really good research. Most recently, you know, I, that comes to mind is, is, you know, Victor Ray's work on racialized organizations. But we have lots of research, good research that shows how institutions are organized and shaped by racialized structures and ideology, right? 
And we also have really good research across the social sciences and history and the humanities that shows how whiteness as an organizing principle or set of logics reproduces itself, how it does that in the household and the family, how it does that within school settings, how it does that within law and policy, within any number of organizational and institutional contexts, and so on and so on. So much good research that I feel bad trying to just mention a little bit of it because there's so there's really an abundance of this out there, right? You don't have trouble finding it. Not if you look, JT, but that's part of the problem. That's right. So if we accept that universities as a kind of an organization are shaped by racialized structures and ideology, and if we accept that a primary aim of whiteness is to reproduce itself, then these institutions are working exactly how they're supposed to by not giving anything up. To give something up would mean they are, by way of their racial logics, they would be acting dysfunctional. So it's going to take demands. It's going to take collective action. I would be very skeptical, very, and I, I am skeptical, of institutions that get ahead of the demands of faculty, staff, and students. It would strike me that that is more than likely a strategic move meant to placate further the demands rather than uh, a move to actually respond to existing and potential inequities or even historic inequities. So I, you know, the short answer to your question is what is it going to take? Collective action and collective demands. Part of your answer reminds me of a conversation that, I don't know if you really want to get into at this moment, but you're probably well positioned to do so. The place that I'm at is uh, religiously affiliated. It is well known for having a conservative kind of traditional bent to it. That religious group that's affiliated is is predominantly white. It has a history of uh, racial injustice and white supremacy. I think that's fair to say. People may agree, disagree with me on that. But the conversation that's happening now amongst at least some faculty and administration is around the specter of critical race theory as a threat to either academic freedom or to professors' ability to say what they want to say. And this gets caught up with other kinds of issues that are that are circulating, particularly among, I would say, right-wing talking heads and, and other folks, particularly cancel culture. So how would you read a conversation about CRT at colleges and universities, you know, particularly ones that maybe aren't public, <laughs> private ones. You know, do you have any thoughts on on the conversation about CRT in in colleges? I do, and again, I think sort of the historical context here is is to my mind, you know, kind of where some of the you know some of the more more fruitful answers might might be right from the very beginning of you know efforts to protect academic freedom. So we're going back to the 1920s now. It was a response to attacks on the academy and attacks on professors who were challenging American hegemony. Um, They were challenging American imperialism. Uh, They were challenging the kind of key core ideals and values of capitalism. They were challenging a lot of the dominant narratives about our nation. They were putting out ideas that were highly contested and controversial in their time. And that was where the notion of academic freedom sort of arose and the need to protect this, right? That colleges and universities ought to be places where we have conversations about difficult ideas. We see it again in the 1950s, around the 1950s and through the 60s with, you know, McCarthyism and certainly the attacks on college professors. You know, I do work on Du Bois and I mean, Du Bois 
faced a federal government inquiry into his activities because of his affiliation with the Communist Party at the time. Other faculty as well experienced this. We see it again in the 1970s with uh, anti-war demonstrations and faculty who were involved in that and the challenges against those faculty on college campuses and the, the efforts to remove those faculty from their positions because, again, they're challenging American hegemony. And then here we are again, and we see it again today. And this time, critical race theory is the target. I think that's important to keep in mind. And what I really stress with my colleagues is that today it's critical race theory and tomorrow it's going to be something else. And it may be something that you teach and something that you research. And so for faculty and others who work on college campuses, public or private, there is no better time to organize like the present. And to stop thinking about ourselves as residing or working in intellectual or academic silos and to see how our work advances a collective good, right? That fundamentally, the things that we do in the classroom, the knowledge that we produce, the understanding that we bring to bear on the human condition, that cuts across disciplines, that cuts across even our own sort of theoretical and intellectual differences and debates, at the end of the day, we are contributing to a collective good here. And I have colleagues who, you know, think that critical race theory is, you know, just something they don't want to deal with. They don't want to talk about. They don't think it's serious, right? Some of the same criticisms that we get from outside the academy exist within the academy. But nevertheless, it is a key way to understand how American hegemony unfolds and gets narrated within, uh, you know, any number of set of institutions, law, policy, schools, and so forth. It is a useful paradigm. It is one that, that exists in part through the same gold standard that all other academic ideas exist through, peer review. And if we respect that process, whether you disagree with the core tenets of that theory or not, or have criticisms of it, and even those of us who work within critical race theory and work within the critical race tradition have criticisms of critical race theory. It is a theory which means by default, it's falsifiable. And we accept that. But we still want to have open and honest and robust conversations about it and not dismiss it entirely. And we have a real opportunity as faculty across institutions to organize around that, right? In defense of kind of core ideals and values, I would like to see more of that. I would certainly like to see more of that among college and university administrators who I think just concede far too much ground in this debate by saying, we want to stay out of the fray. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to ruffle feathers. And in the meantime, those of us who do this work are just, we're just sitting ducks, right? We're, it's just open season on us. And there's no efforts from folks who have the ability to insulate us from these things. There's no work on their behalf to do that. I think that's so, that's so helpful to think about CRT as a, as a perspective, you know, as a theory as something that may not be either right or wrong, but what is it useful to help us to help us do? How is it useful to help us ask, you know, new questions and and train our research questions and research projects in those directions? And I do think you're also onto something. I the idea or the vision of higher education as a public good. I think that that conversation has dropped out of our public life, right? And there's been in my view, a very coordinated, very thoughtful, very strategic set of messages and institutions that have, you know, tried to systematically devalue that part of the story. 
right? So really and more narrowly focus on, you know, either job training or how much money graduates make versus those who don't go to go to school and, and go to college or university and sort of the devolving responsibility for paying for that experience to the individual, right? So if it's a public good, then public resources are required to sustain that and to make it available to the people who either otherwise wouldn't be able to uh, afford that or to make it a public good because we believe it's something that you know helps our entire society, whether or not that leads to a job as an engineer or a career as a, an artist, a storyteller, a creator in a variety of ways. You made me, I just wrote a note here, get Du Bois's FBI file. <laughs> I think that might be, might be really intriguing reading. But I think you're also onto something in terms of, you know, what I tell my students is that sociology is political because it deals with the distribution of valued resources, whether that's money or status, you know, prestige, you know, esteem, whatever we're talking about. But it doesn't, it's not necessarily partisan, right? So I'm not out there cheerleading for this this kind of team or that kind of team, you know, red versus blue, I'm here thinking about how our social systems and our social processes result in inequitable outcomes. All knowledge production is a political process. Like I, I think we, we should have far more conversations about that fact, particularly with our students who, who often even leave the university thinking that, you know, certain disciplines are value free or value neutral. And that's just not the case. It's not the case historically. It's not the case contemporarily. And, and we do a disservice, I think, to, to ourselves if we're selling that story to students in the classroom. I know this conversation, it hits on some themes that are somewhat of a, I don't know, I want to say preoccupation of the annex as a podcast, but you know, this conversation about the role of sociology as a discipline that has you know, potentially political and partisan impacts uh, but that, you know, the the line between entering a research project and you know, trying to push, you know, some kind of political goal or politician's goal versus entering a project and wanting to really examine, you know, the benefits and harms that come from a set of social arrangements and unpacking sort of the mechanisms and how that works. Those are different kinds of those are different kinds of things. And, you know, we ought to be mindful of how our research is impacting or influencing public policy to the extent that it does. And I'm not sure it does nearly as much as it maybe should, but that, you know, if you're out there simply saying, you know, I, I believe whatever, you know, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or whomever, you know, believes, I, I think that's giving away your power as an analyst, right. And giving away your power as a social scientist who is trying to examine the world, you know, critically, but reflectively and, you know, and, and as truthfully as, as possible. Anyway, anything else you want to say about the book? You know, I wrote a review of it. I'm a big fan of it because I think it helps us focus on when these efforts are siloed. You know, the consequence of that, of course, is that different actors on campus don't know what others are doing. And there can really not be then a, a systematic, coordinated, and a really effective efforts to sort of move the needle if we have even measurable goals. I mean, part of this is probably like, you know, we have these things, we feel good about them. But when it comes to like, what are the actual, you know, benchmarks? What are the measurable outcomes? I mean, what would you say about the problem of coordination and then the problem of sort of defining outcomes and what folks should be aiming at? Yeah, I think part of that then goes back to, you know, what is this initiative that we're doing? What are we trying to accomplish here? If the goal is 
equity, then at the root of that is redistribution. So we could probably spend far less time having, you know, deep dialogues with different campus constituencies on, you know, the latest news headline of the day and couch that as part of our diversity efforts and initiatives. And we could probably spend more time talking about, hey, how is power resources opportunity and decision making currently distributed on campus? And what do we think about that current distribution? Do we think that that is equitable? If it is not equitable, let's have a conversation about what would get us closer to equity. And I think it's really just that, right? We don't need to overcomplicate that. But like I said, you know, power concedes nothing without demands. And there are some underlying reasons why administrators in particular aren't having those conversations. It's most likely because they don't want to. Most people who have access to more power and more resources and more opportunities, most of those who are already at the table where decisions are made, don't want to make space for other people. And so that's where the collective demands, you know, that's where that really has to be. I've seen more accomplished by way of protests than I have by way of diplomacy in the 10 years that I've worked on my campus. I think that's instructive. You know, we have a lot of folks who are deeply committed to this idea of diplomacy um, and having conversations in small rooms with key people because they feel like, you know, that's the thing I think they're most comfortable with. I just would encourage folks to get a little uncomfortable at this point. There's a sense of urgency around these matters that I think we need to acknowledge. Right. I think, you know, for movements, there's always sort of the insider outsider, Malcolm and Martin kind of, you know, creative tension. And obviously these are archives. We're not talking specifically about any one thing that Malcolm or Martin said. But, you know, I think this is something that folks who want to, as I say, move the needle on these things, you know, need to be thinking through strategically and using the tools that are available, right? Whether that's an outside pressure strategy as well as an internal sort of nuts and bolts looking at the practices and policies that result in inequitable outcomes. Well, you mentioned Du Bois, so I'm anxious to hear more about your current project on Du Bois. You know, tell us about that. How are you building on the work of folks like Alden Morris, Earl Wright, Marcus Hunter, other folks? I mean, everyone knows how important Du Bois is and the injustice of how mainstream sociology had ignored and in some parts probably continues to ignore the insights of W.E.B. Du Bois. So, Tell us about the project and how are you building on the work of those other good folks who are in this space? So it's interesting, too, to think about what conversations about Du Bois look like outside of sociology in disciplines and across disciplines where, you know, he was never absent. You know, I'm thinking about black studies in particular, which, you know, since the 1960s, Du Bois has been foundational to epistemologies and paradigms out of black studies in ways that he was not central to within the discipline of sociology, right? So in many ways, sociology is, is catching up. And the revival of interest that, that I see in mainstream sociology and in kind of what I would call Du Boisian scholarship, to my mind, there's sort of two desires, right, that, that are driving that revival. There's, there's this desire to acknowledge Du Bois's foundational role in establishing an American tradition for an empirically driven social sciences, to not concede that to the Chicago school, which has historically been what we've done in American sociology. And then the other desire is to sort of better articulate Du Bois's intellectual legacy within contemporary studies of race and racism. 
you know, both Earl Wright II, Alden Morris, they've, they've done fantastic work. Earl Wright II in particular um, has been doing this for decades, relating Du Bois's early work in the Atlanta laboratories, the early work that takes place in Philadelphia, that that is sort of the real genesis of the American sociological tradition and also the Southern sociological tradition. I, I think we need to also be real clear about that. Du Bois studied the South in many ways. When he's in Atlanta, he was studying the South. Elsewhere, outside of sociology, I, you know, I look at works by like Kwame Anthony Apia as giving us sort of one way to, to think about the history of ideas and consider Du Bois's intellectual legacy within kind of a history of ideas perspective, right? Apia is, is largely focused on the American and German experiences of Du Bois early on in his life and how that shapes you know, his intellectual trajectory. My project I'm working on this book called The Souls of Jews. It's it's under contract with University of Georgia Press. I've almost got the first full draft done. COVID has been a, a real struggle for me to get this project off my plate and out there. But my desires are not too dissimilar from, from those that I've already mentioned. I'm trying to do what I think of as a proper intellectual history of Du Boisian scholarship, but through this metaphor that I'm borrowing from, from Paul Gilroy, where I'm using the metaphor of roots and routes, right? So like roots of a plant and then the routes that you take. And thinking about the roots and routes of Du Bois' early theorizing on, on race and racism and really focusing on the work of souls of Black folk in 1903. What are its roots and then what are its routes? And I'm arguing that Du Bois' early thinking on race and racism, particularly anti-Black racism, was inspired by and shaped by his experiences with and reflections upon Western European anti-Semitism. That Du Bois's time that he spends in Germany in the late 19th century, he encounters directly and indirectly Germany's ongoing debate about its, its Jewish question, right? And that that served as a key analytical device or analytical construct that is a springboard for Du Bois into thinking about the conditions of Black America at the turn of the 20th century. So if that's the roots, tell us a little bit about the routes. Right. So Du Bois doesn't come back too often to this concept of double consciousness that, that he puts forward in, in Souls of Black Folk. And really, he puts forward in, in an 1897 essay for The Atlantic that then is revised and republished in, in Souls of Black Folk. Souls of Black Folk is a collection of essays that Du Bois at the time didn't really know what to do much with. They were rogue essays, you know, he described them in, in, in similar terms to rogue essays that he just compiled, never really thought the book was going to do much, and then it became, you know, this sort of instant classic. But this concept of double consciousness that he uses to think about the Black experience in America is the concept that I'm really interested in most because of how it it dovetails with what the German Jewish experience is in Western Europe at the time. And so for me, the routes of that concept, Du Bois doesn't explicitly come back to that concept very much post-1903, post-Souls, but he comes back to it indirectly at several different moments across the 1930s and 40s as he continues to think about the Black experience. And then as he continues to think about the Black experience in the diaspora. And so those kinds of routes that, you know, you can imagine 
a person who is actively researching and writing for you know roughly eight decades, their thought changes tremendously, right? Which in many ways poses some difficulties in trying to track the route of any one particular idea or set of ideas. So one thing I'm not trying to do in this book is try to demonstrate that there's some sort of consistent Du Bois across his lifetime. And I don't think that we should think there is, but rather how does this idea, how does it change? How does it transmogrify? How does it take shape differently? How does Du Bois indirectly talk about double consciousness, even if he doesn't explicitly use the term? And what can that tell us about anti-Black racism today, and also what can it tell us about anti-Semitism today and about their relationship over time? So that's sort of how I'm thinking about routes. Yeah, that that is so interesting. I mean, what you what you bring up is how long his life was, I mean, how rich his life was. And so often I, I feel like we try to periodize scholars. You know, we say early period, middle period, late period, or we say from Philadelphia Negro to Black Reconstruction, and then from Black Reconstruction to the later work, like the autobiographies, right? And beyond that, we must be missing some things when we try to periodize people like that. I, I think so. So if I, if I think about Du Bois's life, right? And I think about when he's, when he's actively writing. So from, you know, the, the mid to late 1880s up through his death in, in 1963, Du Bois is going to live through and 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 be be in place when Germany is undergoing this rapid transformation and becoming this kind of imperialist oriented nation state that ultimately is you know creating some of the conditions that are going to lead to its collapse after World War One and then its subsequent revival under Nazism. He lives through that. He also lives through, in the United States, the high tide of lynching. He lives through, you know, the period of Jim Crow. He lives through both the build up to World War II. He lives through the aftermath of World War II. He lives through the Red Scare after World War II. He's actually a target of this Red Scare and the Red Scare tactics and lives through the emergence and development of the modern civil rights period, right? Lives through all of these very, very significant moments, not just in American history, but in global history. And one of the things that I feel is really important when we're talking about the intellectual legacy or the history of ideas of any particular scholar is to take seriously Randall Collins's point that intellectual work is always situated and influenced by the historic context in which that intellectual lives and works in. Carl Mannheim says something similar to this as well, right? So that any treatment of Du Bois in terms of how he thinks about race and racism across these these different historical moments has to wrestle with how those historical moments are shaping his thought. He's not separate from those things. And so in a lot of ways, I hope what this work does is while you know giving appropriate attention to just how much breadth and depth there is to his intellectual legacy, I ho- also hope in some ways it helps us humanize this person that I think as we're more and more trying to bring Du Bois into the canon, we're canonizing Du Bois in a particular way that is insulating him from critique. Du Bois is maybe for me the most important intellectual figure for me. 
in terms of where I am at right now in my thinking. And he is not beyond critique. And he ought to be treated as a human, as someone who was thinking and writing and wrestling with ideas and probably didn't get it right all the time, but certainly gave us so much to work with across these periods that we have to do that honestly. Yeah. I mean, he's intimidating. Here's a guy, a black man who experienced all of those events. I mean, I was just thinking about, here's a person who wrote Philadelphia Negro, right? Who published Souls, who's working in Atlanta. You know, you've got Woodrow Wilson in the White House, who's screening that movie, and then publishes Black Reconstruction, which is just an entirely new, you know, critiques the dominant school, you know, the dominant understanding of the Reconstruction period in historiography, right? Someone was saying, maybe it was you, he's never tenured. No, he's never, he's never tenured in his lifetime, which I think, you know, again, if we think about, you know, the attacks on the academy and the attacks on particular lines of thought, right? These attacks come in all kinds of shapes and forms, right? That there is a real burden for the black intellectual in challenging colonialism, imperialism, white supremacy in your work and in your daily practice. There is a price for that. And, and Du Bois paid that price in droves. He really did. As much as he was well-respected and well-regarded within the Black intellectual and Black radical traditions, the lack of acceptance of him, not his work, him, the lack of acceptance of him across his career within predominantly white academia, that's also really instructive. I think it should be instructive. When I was going through his archives, you know, one of the points that you sometimes hear made about Du Bois is that he wasn't well-read by his peers. He was incredibly prolific in terms of his writing, but his peers weren't reading his work. That's not true. His peers were absolutely reading his work. They just weren't citing him. And there's a difference between the two. When I was going through his archives, you find all of these personal letters from Columbia University, Department of Sociology, Department of Economics at the University of Missouri. The University of Missouri, Charles Elwood writes Du Bois. Charles Elwood's a former ASA president, writes Du Bois asking for a copy of one of the Atlanta laboratory studies to house at the University of Missouri so that they can show their students what such exceptional sociological work looks like, right? He gets letters like this from top universities across the country, Stanford as well, right? People absolutely were reading Du Bois. They were absolutely taking his ideas into consideration, and then they're just not giving him the proper credit for it, right? So he paid a price. He did. One of my curiosities has been Du Bois later in life, you know, once he has been at the NAACP, you know, he goes to Atlanta, he goes back to the NAACP, he works on the children's book series, you know, he gets ensnared in in the Red Scare, you know, there's that famous letter where he joins the Communist Party, at least famous to me anyway, when he joins the Communist Party, and then then he's done with the U.S., or at least he leaves. I mean, what do you what do you know about that? Because I'm really curious about sort of what his writing was like at that time. I mean, sort of like maybe the, I don't know, how to periodize this exactly, but, you know, the mid-50s to the end of his life or the early 50s to the end of his life. Do you have any any insights into what he was working on and his decision to move to Ghana? I mean, I actually know he was working on the Pan-African Encyclopedia. That's probably not the name of it. But in my view, he had really expanded the scope of his work to the, as you said earlier, the global diaspora. So can you describe 
to us, like when he made that transition and how he made that transition and then what he was working on and why he chose to leave the U.S. and, and move to Ghana? I mean, he, he begins to sort of make this move intellectually into thinking about, you know, anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism, you know, late 1930s, early 1940s, and especially 1940s in his written work. So by the time you get to the 1950s, that's where his headspace is. And to my mind, it's sort of a natural and very organic development in his, in his kind of intellectual thinking that he goes there, right? We're coming up out of World War II. The, the kind of global geopolitics is, is getting reconfigured. America is emerging as the kind of the hegemonic figure in the geopolitical landscape. He's developing a greater sense of, you know, what the legacies of imperialism and colonialism from the previous configuration are having on not just Africa, but Latin America and also East Asia and South Asia. And at the same time, there are these movements that are happening, right, in African, you know, both colonial nations and then nations that are violently, you know, overthrowing their colonial regimes to shift to newly formed nationalized African nation states. Same thing happened in Latin America. Like he's he's attentive to all of this. And I think that that his move to Ghana is in part a reflection of kind of this intellectual shift that that he is having and also that he does not feel comfortable in the United States. So much so that like I think living and working in the United States at that point was just deeply disagreeable with his personal politics and that there's that drive for him to to go to Ghana in part because of that. But to my mind it's a it's a very natural shift for him, but it's also if you put him into kind of the big historical context of his life and work, it's really a pendulum shift, right? Like this is the same figure who wrote, I think his undergraduate thesis at Fisk University is sort of like this take on imperial Germany that is in many ways, like when you read it, there's a kind of an infatuation he has with imperial Germany and, you know, the aesthetics of imperial Germany, right? Not just like what it's doing as a nation state, but really the military aesthetics of it. He's still heavily impressed with Germany when he goes there in the late 20th century And then when he goes back in the 1930s, reading him from the present lens, you wish he would have been more deeply critical of the emergent Nazi regime there than he was. And so if you think about it in those terms, to by the time you get to the 1950s, he's criticizing imperialism, colonialism. He's trying to build solidarity with pan-African networks and organizations. Like that is a big shift, right? That's a major shift. Now, I never knew about the Fisk undergraduate thesis, you know, and of course he was in Germany in the late 1800s on that fellowship. You know, he's where the action is at this period in history, as you say, right after World War II and the decolonizing movements that, to bring us back to earlier in our conversation, that highlight the the need for global solidarity, you know, against imperialist hegemons, right? Whether that is the old world powers of Northern and Western Europe or the more local ones, uh, whether that's the United States or other powers, right? So interesting. All right. Well, JT Thomas, thank you so much. JT, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Mississippi, author of Diversity Regimes, Why Talk is Not Enough to Fix Racial Inequality at Universities, co-author of the book, Our Racist Crazy, which is definitely on my reading list, author of, what's the name of the, the book on stand-up? Uh, Working to Laugh. And then uh, the other one is with my, my dear friend and colleague, Jennifer Correa, on, on affective labor. 
I really appreciate you bringing me on, on Dan. This has been really great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I really do. It's definitely my pleasure to, to talk with you and to share this really, this really great work with folks. JT, if folks want to connect with you, follow you on Twitter, I know you're a prolific tweeter. How can they follow you on the socials? Yeah, so my handle on Twitter is insurgent underscore prof, P-R-O-F. You know, I welcome the follow. I guess maybe I do a little bit of everything on Twitter. Some people say I do a little too much, but, you know, I talk politics, I talk culture, I talk work, I talk barbecue and good whiskey. I like to post pictures of whatever I happen to be smoking or grilling at that time and also like to poke the bear, as they say, poke the proverbial bear every now and then, which, you know, sometimes gets me in in some kind of trouble, but it's good trouble. Well, follow JT for updates about all those things, but also Campus Solidarity. And I know you're involved with the campus workers at the University of Mississippi and also, you know, in touch with solidarity movements across statuses, faculty, staff, graduate students, other campus workers. And so, you know, bringing us back, you know, to the top, you know, the a focus, I think, of, of your work, but also your example and your, if I could say, witness would be the importance of recognizing that, you know, we are in this together and that. We don't live in separate societies. We don't, our disciplines are not as separate or separable as we might think. And focusing on that academic labor part and the way that uh, we all have a responsibility to, to fight for the public good, right? And that includes, that includes what, we, what we do. Yeah, we're uh, United Campus Workers of Mississippi. We chartered in, in 2018. We are the State of Mississippi's first higher education union. We are a wall-to-wall union. We're not a faculty union. We are a faculty staff. Anybody who gets a paycheck at the University of Mississippi or any of the public colleges and universities in Mississippi can join our, our labor organization. I'm incredibly proud of the fact that we were able to charter our organization and that we do the work that we do in, in that state. All right. JT, so good to talk with you. Thanks so much for, for being on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate you, man. <laughs>